0: But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by Rollbar.com. If you need error and exception tracking in your application, check out Rollbar.com. They have a great UI and terrific tools for helping you track down the problems in your application and getting it back up and running as quickly as possible. You can find them at Rollbar.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 257 of the Ruby Roads podcast. This week on our panel, we have Coraline Ada Emke. Oh, hi. Avi Grimm. Hello from Tennessee. Jessica Kerr.
1: Good morning.
0: I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV. And uh, this week, we have a special guest, and that is Neil Brown. Hi. Do you want to introduce yourself, Neil?
2: Uh, Yes. I work as a programming education researcher at the University of Kent in the UK. I'm not sure what that all entails. (laughs) So what I do is, um, what our team does rather, is we build tools uh, that people use when learning to program. So our two main pieces of technology we work on is we have an IDE called BlueJ, uh, which is for Java, not Ruby, I'm afraid. Uh, And we have another one called Greenfoot, Uh, and so Bluejay's aimed at sort of first-year college students, and Greenfoot is kind of aimed at sort of uh, late high school. So we just, rather than try and sort of get people using professional tools that can be a bit overwhelming, like uh, Eclipse, uh, IntelliJ, you know, fill in your favorite IG here, Visual Studio, whatever... We try and actually sort of design pared down IDEs uh, that are targeted for education that don't sort of overwhelm people new to programming and just try and sort of ease them in better uh, to get them started with, with learning to program.
0: I think for us on this show, it's been a while since we were new to programming, even if we've switched paradigms or languages you still have a lot of knowledge you bring with you. So I'm curious what, you know, you pare down the IDE so that it's not overwhelming for new people, but where do people get stuck? Where do new people kind of have their experience fall apart a little bit that they have to either power through or get some help at?
2: The first thing immediately is syntax. It's the, the initial barrier to getting started with programming. Sort of We now know, you know, being fairly technical and if you sort of have a vague understanding of how a compiler works, we understand the importance of syntax, you know, why it's needed, why it needs to be precise. And we also have a sort of, you know, we're fairly easy with fixing syntax errors. If you're developing tomorrow and, you know, you get a syntax error, you will just be able to look at the code, find the bit where it's gone wrong and fix it. For a beginner, you know, they don't know the rules of the game yet. They don't even understand why it's important. You know, why do you have to be so precise? Why is everything so fiddly? You know, modern interfaces, things like Google will say, you know, did you mean X? You're not going to get that so much if you get your syntax wrong while programming. So the initial barrier that everyone runs into is syntax. They don't know why it's important. They don't know how to get it right. And they don't understand the errors when they get it wrong. So that all makes it sort of very difficult when, when confronted by that when you're doing programming.
3: So I'm curious, Neil. A lot of developers don't use IDEs. What made you decide that an IDE was like a valuable tool for getting people started?
2: Yeah, it's interesting actually. That I suspect it varies a lot between language how many programmers use use IDEs. That so if you talk to different programmer communities, you probably get sort of fairly different answers. You know, I imagine if you do .NET, for example it's sort of, you know, a lot of people, if you're doing .NET on Windows, you're going to be using Visual Studio. So there I'd expect you get very high IDE use. If you're doing something, say, more like JavaScript programming, then I imagine you're going to get a lot less IDE usage. So Java is one of the sort of realms where perhaps IDE usage is more common. And so for us, it it seemed like a natural step to have an IDE. And, And also for a beginner, we feel that You know, having trying to understand several separate tools at once, you know, you've got a text editor, you're maybe invoking the compiler on the command line, it creates a lot of sort of effort compared to if you just have an IDE with an editor with a button that says compile, it's less for them to take in, less for them to understand. A lot of sort of young people nowadays haven't used a command line before, so if you're trying to throw them into a command line at the same time as teaching them programming, they've got a lot of new things to learn at once. So just creating an interface where they can focus on writing the code and sort of hide away some of the details like compilation, it's a good step to kind of reduce the load on them while they're learning.
3: That makes a lot of sense, especially like I hadn't thought about the fact that different programming communities have um, you know, different reliances on different tools. And um, I definitely hear what you're saying with regard to the command line. I've taught some Ruby classes and I've had to do like a, a 101 on terminal. So I definitely understand um, the need to or the desire to bypass that as much as possible.
0: I'm also curious, are these problems things that you see within the context of the university or do you go beyond the university to talk to people who are self-teaching or doing boot camps or some of the other ways that people come into the community?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. So mainly we see people who are sort of using it in a more formal education context. So they're they're at high school or maybe in sort of uh, after-school classes or, you know, for us we teach at university so we see all our sort of incoming university students. And for us that's mainly where we've targeted. We haven't actually done so much on, as you say, things like self-teaching And bits like that. It's it's really hard in programming in general to know what proportion of people sort of self-teach and what proportion learn in kind of a more formal setting. You know, I've seen some statistics fly around. I saw the Stack Overflow survey recently, which suggested one set of numbers. It's really like I don't even have an intuitive feel for what the right answer should be to even know if some of these are kind of accurate or not.
1: But certainly if we have programming, good programming courses available, both independently and in formal settings, that offers the most people opportunity.
2: Yeah, it does, and obviously there's been a huge rise in things like MOOCs, you know, over the past few years, Coursera and um, Dasty and all these sort of things offering lots and lots of courses on programming. So yeah, I, I think ideally, you know, a tool will be sort of suited to, to both contexts to allow people to sort of come into it as adult learners and also to come into it as sort of uh, as younger learners.
1: You mentioned that your two IDEs are targeted at early college and late high school. What do you do differently?
2: To target the particular age groups.
1: Yes.
2: Yeah, so um our original uh work was Blue Jay, which was first year university. Uh, and part of that was, of course, until sort of the past few years, there was very little computing in schools. So if you're going to kind of, you know, think about making a, a tool for somebody who's starting to learn to program, most people started to learn to program in formal settings when they reached university, if we leave aside the self-teaching for, for a moment. Um and so that was sort of 15 years ago that we were uh, developing that uh, and putting that out there. And then on top of that, as people sort of um, were learning kind of in schools as well, we made Greenfoot, which is actually it shares a code base with Blue Jay, but it's for making games and kind of it's got a sort of visual aspect that you run around if you've seen Scratch you'll know the idea, you've sort of got a stage and things move around and change pictures and, you know, you can do keyboard control and that sort of thing. So that was what we sort of bolted on the front, if you like, to kind of make it more appealing to to younger learners. But BlueJ is maybe a little bit drier, but it allows you to sort of get to some of the more nitty-gritty bits that you need if you're sort of doing university study.
1: So, in fact, over the course of 15 years, learning programming in formal settings has shifted younger.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I mean, obviously, in the past sort of few years it's the real sort of zeitgeist thing to think about doing coding you know in schools Uh, so code.org other sort of initiatives in the United States in the UK we've had computing at school Uh, was a group that we've been part of trying to um, introduce computing into into our schools that was very successful we're now on the English national curriculum from age five to 14 there is a subject computing which has a computer science component and that involves programming algorithms and similar. So other countries are sort of thinking of the same. So it really has become sort of, you know, getting people started younger in formal settings. I know people have often started younger sort of by themselves, self teaching, but now it's getting into schools as well, I think.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. So there's a formal subject computing added to the curriculum all the way down to age five. That's wonderful.
2: Yeah. I mean, don't, don't think that they're all writing Java, you know, at age five. <laughs> You know, it's...
3: Um, Haskell is much more suited to olds <laughs> I know, right? Exactly. Yeah.
1: Um, clips, they're really hard to draw when you don't know cursive.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so, you know, initially it might be concepts. Uh, it's things like, you know, they, they explore the concept of algorithms with things like, what's your process for getting up in the morning? You know, I first I brush my teeth, then I change into my school clothes, then I have breakfast, you know, sequencing Uh, And that sort of thing, Um, there's some exercises to do with things like uh, precise instructions. There's a a really good one involving sandwich making, where you get a sort of teacher uh, to act as a robot, a sandwich making robot. And the kids have to tell them what to do. And the teacher deliberately misinterprets the instructions whenever possible. So the kids say, oh, well, that's fine. You Just like take the jam and you put it on the bread. So like they lift up the sort of, uh, you know, pot of jam and they just place it on the loaf of bread. And they're like, done. And the kids, you know, they're like six or seven or something, and they're all like laughing, you know, like, no, no, you've got to like put the jam on on like a piece of bread. And so he's like, you know, okay, so what should I do? And they're like, okay, take out a piece of bread, then put jam on it. And so, you know, he puts potty jam on the piece of bread. And they're like, no, no, you got to like use a knife and spread it. And so gradually kind of lead them towards being more precise. So it's something that's fun. You know, kids can do it. Like I say, we're not teaching them, you know, Java, but just trying to get across some of the sort of uh, concepts of programming. And then obviously they move into systems like Scratch, which is suited for kind of young programmers. And then later in the age range, they'll move on to Python, Ruby, Java, you know, sort of text-based programming. How long
3: has that program been in operation? Has it been in operation long enough to get some statistics about impact on um, new students in college who are um, signing up for CS or anything like that yet? Uh,
2: not quite yet. So it's, we've been in the national curriculum, I think, uh, nearly two years now. Sort of alongside that uh, in the UK, we've been uh, making sure that there are qualifications to take be- between age 14 and 18. Uh, sort of that gap between this this national curriculum and and when they come to university. And some of them were already there, but the numbers got very low over the years. That's now seeing an increase. And certainly when we talk to students coming in uh, to our university, we are starting to see people who've done programming. And it makes it very difficult for us as a university, because in general, computer science courses have always assumed that people know nothing coming in. And you always get this hugely diverse intake of people who've been like programming in their bedrooms for the last six years and, you know, are proficient in several languages. And all of a sudden we're like, okay, this is an if statement. And they all get sort of quite switched off. But at the same time, we have got people coming in who haven't had opportunity to sort of study much computing or weren't sort of very aware of it. And for them, we do need to teach them this is an if statement. So it's something that universities, I think, worldwide find it hard to juggle with computing. There's not a sort of recognized path like with physics you know with physics you don't start with sort of okay you know this is an electron or something you know you can assume that they know the basics in computing it's more difficult because we're a new discipline and that will take some time to to settle down i think
3: i'm curious as well um about the impact on um lower grade teachers like what kind of training do the teachers get for the young kids to teach them some of those fundamentals is that something that the program also addresses It has been difficult,
2: especially when we live in a sort of age of austerity. So there was there was certainly government will to put the subject into the curriculum, but there wasn't necessarily the sort of ideal amount of government money to provide the training. So there is definitely a lag and a big issue there, and I know that affects the U.S. uh, and all sorts of other countries as well. Trying to train up enough teachers to sort of back this up is a very difficult uh, logistical issue, and there's not really the sort of proper formal programs in place, a lot of it is kind of quite ad hoc to get people up to speed.
0: So I'm, I'm curious, how does this approach with uh, high school students and college students affect people coming into the programming community at large? Because it seems like you have quite the diverse uh, set of people coming in as far as experience level goes anyway. So you've got people who, like you said, are brand new and you've got people who have been experimenting with or even, you know, full on at a professional level been programming when they come into the program. So who are you trying to send back out into the community? Who, you know, at what level do you expect people to to be at when they come and join sort of the ranks and uh, become professional programmers?
2: Yeah, it is, it is difficult. And obviously, if you've got that sort of diversity of intake, you're not going to magically sort of arrive them all at the same point you know, even after three years of study, you can't necessarily sort of get them all up to exactly the same point. So it's awkward. I mean, ideally, we'd send out people, you know, who are um, obviously they're not going to be seasoned expert programmers, but, you know, who know how to program, who can sort of uh, deal with, we try and teach several different languages, you know, several different paradigms to sort of give people, you know, a flavor of the different things that they might be going to do, you know, a bit of experience with web, a bit with sort of embedded, to try and just sort of, Gives them a, a broad base to go from, but there will always be an element of, you know, learning once they get into the workplace, especially if, you know, they came to it sort of having not done so much before. I've seen people really grasp it. And, you know, within one or two years, they actually do catch up to sort of, you know, people who've been doing it for longer. Uh, but, you know, that's that's sort of more the exception, I guess, than uh, sort of a realistic pattern for everybody.
0: I think we also see this in our professional environments, too, where we're looking to hire people. We may or may not be able to find people at the experience level we want them to be at. And so we bring people in at various uh, experience levels and try and level them up as they work with us, you know, either as interns or as, as employees or however that works out. Apprentices. Right. So, you know, do you think the approach is the same or are there differences between apprenticing somebody? I like that word, Coraline, as opposed to, you know, kind of bringing them up through a formalized curriculum and hoping that you turn somebody out at the end who can go and contribute.
2: Yeah, I I think this is a a question that comes up a lot, and especially if you start discussing it between programmers who have, say, a degree and who are self-taught, and it often gets very sort of sensitive issue, you know, because you you can have a workplace where people start saying, we're going to require a degree, and you've actually got people working there already who don't have a degree. You know, they're going to feel very excluded by that kind of policy or discussion, Um, about it. Obviously, as working at university, I would like to think that our degree has value and that it's useful. But I think especially in computing, it's still kind of an open question for a lot of people whether university is worth it. You know, should I bother to go and do a degree for three years? uh, Or should I just sort of try and, you know, find a job, get started, have three years experience? Uh, You know, obviously, I work for a university, I'm going to be biased. But I don't know that, you know, a lot of people would sort of think differently on that issue.
3: I, um, I definitely have some opinions on that issue being self-taught myself. I actually, um, I took one computer science course in college and, um, I was kind of bored out of my mind and not really challenged. So it actually made me think I couldn't do software development for a living because I thought that's what the profession would be like. But luckily I sort of fell into it anyway. But, um, one of the things I've observed from students coming out of university programs is that there is, um, there seems to be a heavy concentration on theory and algorithms and less on the things that we actually do day to day as developers, including like agile methodologies and like how to work with other people and um, some of the more practical aspects. Is that something that you're trying to address as well?
2: Yeah. And I think what, one issue that comes up over and over again is that we offer a computer science degree and send people out to work as software engineers or developers, or whatever you want to call it. And, and there is, like, some of the theory stuff comes from that sort of mismatch that we want to teach them sort of, you know, useful computer science concepts, I don't know, uh, sort of big O notation, you know, sort of some bits of formal theory and so on, which they won't necessarily use kind of in the software engineering parts. But I think most universities have tried to mix in aspects of that. We certainly cover some agile methodologies things like version control, we, you know, do group projects. We sort of do things like uh, human-computer interaction. So I think universities, there's still a few who are kind of deliberately more formal and sort of mathematical. But I think a lot of the others have tried to sort of put bits like that in. I mean, to some extent, with some of that, there's no substitute for actually, you know, having the experience in a sort of professional context. And for that, we offer a very popular year in industry. So, you know, we teach them for two years. They go out and actually intern for a year come back, finish off their degree in the final year. And that provides a good mix of kind of experience in a professional workplace that we can't provide, but also sort of formal teaching that perhaps the workplace, you know, doesn't have the time or resources to give.
3: That's an amazing idea. I really like that. And I'm kind of jealous that that's what you're doing in the UK and that's not what we're doing here.
2: Yeah, I don't know if that happens much at U.S. universities. Um, It's it's something that our university particularly specializes in, the sort of year in industry. I know a few other places do it as well, but I, I don't know immediately how widespread it is.
1: I know at Stripe we have a lot of interns from um, a smattering of universities and they'll come for six months or so.
3: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I hadn't really heard of that being um, very widespread. I know a lot of companies are not either willing or capable of dealing with an influx of really junior, really early career people in general.
1: We do that a lot. It's It's part of its recruiting because a lot of those people come back after they finish their degree, uh, but also, I don't know, maybe it's easier when you look at an internship at, this is six months, and we give them some project that is doable in that amount of time.
3: One of the companies that I worked for in the last few years would not hire any people who were not at least mid-level because they felt like, they, like if they trained someone, they would leave and um, they weren't really worth the investment, which is um, pretty sad.
0: I, I hear that a lot, and I'm somewhat unsympathetic to the company. I mean, I usually just tell them, well, then, because usually what they say is, well, then they'll leave and they'll go get paid more somewhere else, and my answer is, "Is well, then they're worth more, so pay them more.
3: Yeah, yeah. exactly. But I mean, that, we're, we're in a position where the only way to get a pay increase, pretty much regardless of what level you're at, is to move jobs.
1: Well, Fortunately, that's really easy. Yes. But, but it does help us. We have that
3: privilege stuff. as people who are not early career. That's exactly. true.
0: One thing that I have seen, though, is that with other areas of business, I talk to a lot of uh, business folks, and it's the same thing there, too. You raise your price, right? Uh, you know, We've added these features to our product, or for the podcast sponsorships, for example, our listenership has grown so much, so we're increasing the sponsorship price. And they're kind of stuck at the old value and the old price, basically. And it's sometimes hard to overcome that, and I see that the same with you know, with other folks. And so, yeah, it, it's hard to overcome and ask for a raise as opposed to just going and getting another offer somewhere else and, and making that work.
1: Oh, that's interesting. So it's it's hard to see the same person in a new light.
0: I, I think I think in a lot of ways, the people that I've seen successfully negotiate a raise either have a boss that is open to that. In other words, they're willing to take a look and say, okay, you know, you're providing more value, so we'll definitely pay you more since you asked. I very rarely see anybody actually get a raise without asking. You know, cost of living sometimes is built in, but, you know, that's a little bit beside the point. The other way that I've seen it done is somebody goes in and says, when you hired me, I was doing X, Y, and Z, and now I'm doing P, D, and Q as well. And so I, I deserve a raise, and sometimes I'll get it that way. But, yeah, a lot of people, the way they get their raise is they go get an offer somewhere else. They come in and they tell their boss that they're on their way out because they got a better offer somewhere else. And then the boss looks at them and realizes that it's going to be extremely costly to lose them and then makes them a better offer.
3: I can tell you that that scenario does not play out very often or nearly as often with people who are underrepresented in tech because we tend to feel like our positions are very tenuous. And a lot of people just will not, they're not comfortable speaking up for themselves and taking the risk of, of losing a job by negotiating for a higher salary because that sort of thing does happen.
0: I can totally see that. I mean, if you're, if you're not comfortable with the val or with them perceiving the value that you bring, then having a conversation where you ask for more value in return is hard because you don't believe that they're going to recognize that you actually merit that raise.
3: Exactly. So one of the things we do at GitHub is there are engineering levels and with every level, there's a set of um, expected behaviors and responsibilities. And so, um, as part of the review process, your level is reassessed. Um, and there are salary ranges that go with each level. Unfortunately, those salary ranges are not shared, but it's pretty clear, like, what you need to move toward to level up as an engineer. And you have some of, you know, some semi-objective measures. You can say, look, I'm a level four and a level five says that I'm supposed to be doing these sorts of things. And this is how I have actually done those things over the past six months. So you can make a little bit more of a structured argument for getting a promotion.
0: Well, and those kinds of clear expectations are very powerful too, because you can then actually say, I meet the criteria, therefore I am a level five and I should be paid level five. Exactly. And and it's not a criteria that you've made up. It's not a criteria that you've set. It's just the system that you're working in, and it removes a lot of the other extraneous details as far as you know what color your hair is or what gender you are or anything else.
1: Super interesting deviation, but I have a lot more questions for Neil.
0: <laughs> I was actually going to bring this back around. I'm curious, Neil, how do you actually prepare people for this aspect of having a programming job? I mean, we, we focus so much on technology and so much on you know, can you do this thing in this technology? And there are so many other aspects of working on a team and having a job and negotiating raises that I didn't have any experience with until I actually had a job and failed at it a few times.
2: Yeah, I think this may come under sort of, there's a limit to some extent to how much you can put in sort of one degree. And I think universities, you know, we, we try and sort of, for example, find people, help them find jobs, you know, at the end of the degree. But you're right, I'm not sure we ever do much with sort of preparation for kind of the more general work issues, things like, you know, office politics, you know, people are bound to encounter or, you know, negotiating pay rises or, you know, even sort of, you know, what your expectations should be for salary or that sort of thing. I I think we don't cover that. Yeah. I I don't know whether we should or not. It's kind of, one problem is that whatever you're going to put in your degree must be taught by academics. And I'm not sure sort of (laughs) people who've been academics for a long time necessarily know Kind of the answers for this, we almost need like industry people to come back and say, "Okay, you know, here's how it is in the real world. Like, here's my tips, you know, like on surviving. That might be something that's quite useful that maybe we should think about doing.
0: Yeah,
1: maybe a workshop on how to have a job. (laughs) Yeah, that would probably be useful. uh, Cross degree program.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: So I had a question about teaching people to program and you're introducing them in a friendly way in an IDE that you said it makes them not have to worry about the compiler and all the different steps what is the first thing you want them to learn
2: um so what we do when we sort of run workshops and things is in say greenfoot for, for high school students is we sort of say okay here's the interface you know here's how you open the editor now that you've got the editor open what i want you to do is put your cursor there and type this line of code. And the first one, you've just got to give it to them. Like, you know, they don't know anything about it. You just say, okay, like our first line of code is usually move, like open brackets, six, close bracket semicolon, hit compile, go back to sort of the, the Greenfoot window, hit run, and your little like crab we usually use for our intro workshops will run across the screen. And that way, you've shown them a line of code, they've put it in, hopefully they've got it right because it was really short, and something has happened like they've actually made the computer do something and so then hopefully you know they're engaged okay so it did something we go back and say okay you know here's another line of code to like turn and so put that in then it runs in a circle then might sort of introduce keyboard control with some sort of if statement so often we sort of build a mix of you know the first bit you've just got to sort of tell them directly what to do because they don't have magically have knowledge of sort of programming but once you've shown them some bits you can then ask them to assemble it in a different order so you can say you know okay, we've shown you how to turn left when the left key is pressed. Now you figure out how to you know, manage turning right when the right key is pressed and just sort of build it from there. So it's a mixture of sort of explicit instruction, you know, write this, do this, and then kind of giving them more and more rein to kind of do what they want. And one challenge that we have is the longer we make the workshop, the more difficult it gets because they all have these ideas like, hey, so my game I want to like, you know, make this thing kind of run away from you or like I want the enemies to hunt you down or, you know, all these sort of different requests or, you know, I want to make this sort of thing bounce and like you get so many requests and so many ideas and the one difficulty particularly is of course they don't have any idea what's feasible and what's easy and what's really difficult. So they will ask something that's trivial like, you know, how do I make it move backwards instead of forwards? Oh, that's fine. You know, just put a minus on the number. Uh, you know, that's easy. And then they'll have some other requests like, you know, okay, I want the enemy to hide from you. And it's like, oh, <laughs> you know, that, that's like a complicated algorithm uh, that you're going to have to build. And if you don't know programming, you don't understand that one is sort of trivial and the other is, you know, like almost a research problem. It's sort of, so you just have to manage some of the expectations and steer them towards things that, you know, are possible and things that aren't possible. But if they drive it, then it's often quite powerful because, you know, they're doing what they want to do, not what, you know, sort of just restricted to doing exactly what you're telling them.
1: So the first lesson of programming is programs make the computer do stuff.
2: I guess so. Yeah. (laughs) That'd be a good way to sum it up.
3: I think it's interesting that, Neil, you're using games in the um, high school IDE. I know there's sort of an intuition that games are a more rewarding form of programming um, to get started with because you can see the effects of what you're doing and uh, games are like a familiar. We have a vocabulary for games already, um, generally speaking, by the time we get to that age. Is there research to back that up or did you sort of follow your intuition there?
2: Um, yeah, I think it was it was part intuition. Uh, certainly, you know there have been studies showing that that games can be successful. But I think it's important to try and have a a diversity of applications if you want to draw everybody in. Not everyone plays games, and you know this isn't even like a, a gender issue or anything. You know, not every boy plays games. You'd be sort of foolish to assume that. And games aren't going to draw everyone. Obviously, you've got to pick something you know, you have to sort of pick an application to sort of begin making, you might try and sort of do a mobile app, you know, you might do a game, you might try and do a website, like whatever you pick, there will be advantages and disadvantages, there will be people who aren't interested, and people who really love it. And so I think, you know, for sort of a longer course, you'd ideally try and visit several, within reason, several different applications of sort of computing, you know, several different things that you could build. But I think you want to make it interesting, you know, classic computing problems as Starting out, are things like convert Fahrenheit to Celsius, and it's just that kind of draws almost no one. You know, you want something that's more engaging, that kind of people are actually sort of interested to make. You know, one application is golden and will have everyone interested, but there are some oh, I was totally kind interested
1: the in converting Fahrenheit to Celsius. <laughs> I thought that sounded super useful.
2: Okay, I, I
3: actually don't, I don't believe in Celsius. So. <laughs> I'm not convinced. So, uh, so, so you're converting have no seen, op to
0: Fahrenheit. That's right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I have seen um, some programs successfully um, use music as a way of teaching um, programming because music is like kind of universally or more universally uh, appreciated, and um, the hardware cost can be a lot less too. With um, you know a sonic distributing a sonic pi um, and getting someone up and running with music, I know music is a great way to teach concurrency, for example.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting. I was talking to uh some of the people who make Scratch recently, uh, which, you know, is another tool aimed at beginners. And Scratch has quite strong support for, for music generation, whereas Greenfoot doesn't. And I think it literally comes down, you know, the classic thing that developers build what they know and what they'd want. None of us on the Greenfoot team are especially musical, hoping I'm not doing a disservice to my colleagues um, whereas <laughs> there's one or two on the scratch team who are really sort of into music, so they built a lot of music things into theirs uh We built less into ours, um I guess because we were less interested um but yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting how these these things can come about.
1: What type of hypotheses does your research group test
2: It's a good question um. A sort of spectrum in research, I think, especially computing research, between the people who do a lot of sort of classical science, uh, sort of studies, hypothesis testing, participants, and that sort of thing, more to, and then there's kind of the other end, uh, where we're sitting. So this is a, a long explanation of why, which is kind of, you know, we're sort of building things. We're kind of halfway between research and engineering. So our focus is especially on building tools. At the moment, we're, doing a sort of partner study with someone who's um, more experienced in doing the testing. So we have a tool which is called frame-based editing, which is partway between Scratch and text-based editing. We're currently testing whether school students, when given that, and given text-based Java, is there a difference in the performance of the two? So we, you know, we assign part of the students to one condition, the rest of the students to the other condition, so some of them get Java, some of them get our frame-based editor. We set them a task that's the same task in both, and we see Okay. Do they do it faster? Do they do it with less errors? Do they report less frustration at the end of it? So that's the kind of sort of testing that we do. Uh, it's not our particular specialism, but like I say, we we try and sort of partner with others to to do that.
1: So your group builds tools that other researchers use.
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, it. It's,
1: your infrastructure sort of for research. That's so cool.
2: <laughs> <laughs> to some extent. So you know, we build tools that teachers use, but we also build tools that sort of provide. Uh, Yeah, opportunities for research. One of our other projects is that in BlueJ we actually ask all our users uh, worldwide, "Are you happy to send us your data for collection?" So this is a bit like you know what Firefox does, or uh, I think Eclipse has it as well, usage data collection. They ask, you know, okay, can we keep track of what you're doing in order to sort of make our. Usually theirs is to make their product better. We actually capture even the source code that people are writing with their permission, and we offer that to other researchers to then look and see, you know, things like what difficulties do people have when learning to program Java, how do they use unit tests when they're sort of learning, you know, which compiler error messages seem to particularly throw people off. So we're trying to sort of apply a big data approach to sort of improving uh, programming education.
4: So I have some questions about the the tools that you're building. You mentioned the um, the Greenfoot and uh, BlueJ I- IDEs, and you mentioned briefly... That you're trying out <clears throat> you're trying out an approach uh, you called frame based editing and as I was watching some of the videos for the tools you've made um, there are a bunch of interesting aspects to to how you're approaching uh, writing code um, I'm not sure how how detailed we can really talk about that it's kind of stuff some of this stuff is stuff you really have to go and watch these videos you have to watch uh, some of the animations to see what's going on here but what I'm really curious about is do you have some kind of overarching theories or uh, strategies that that go into how you think about how people should, you know, how to, how to change the way people write code.
2: Yeah, I guess the part of the motivation between behind frame based editing is this idea that text is not the best medium for storing a program. Uh, this isn't a particularly new idea. If anyone knows structured editors uh, from sort of the 1980s or so, you know, what we do with text-based code is we immediately parse it into an AST, an abstract syntax tree. So why are we adding this sort of useless text bit on the front if what we're actually sort of editing and manipulating most of the time is the syntax tree of the language? And so structured editing sort of the first time around was an attempt to actually have that tree explicitly in the editor to sort of do away with the sort of needless flexibility of text and actually just edit the syntax tree. And by and large, structured editors weren't very good But you have to remember that this was the 1980s. Sort of HCI was in its infancy back then. We've learned a lot since then. We're not necessarily sort of editing on the terminal. Graphical editors give us more options, more flexibility. And so you can imagine us sort of taking a second look at this idea and saying, okay, well, Scratch, for example, has been really successful. And Scratch basically is a structured editor. You've got these blocks that you drag around. You've got the bits where you edit the text but you're not sort of dealing with indentation. You're not sort of worrying about so much of the syntax errors. You're just graphically editing the syntax to your program. And so we're trying to sort of take that scratch idea and bring it a bit closer to text-based programming and to say, you know, can we have a better go at this? Is this useful? Our hope, sort of ambitious hope, is that it's useful for learning programming, but actually it's just useful for programming in general, because certain sort of, issues fall away. If you've ever had an argument over spaces versus tabs in your team, then, you know, why? Like, spaces versus tabs is, is just a sort of pointless, sort of, bit in how the text is stored, but it doesn't There is the no argument there. Program.
3: I'm sorry. There is no argument.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's spaces. Spaces are the only thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, so you know, it's just, like, why does it even matter? It is not sort of. It doesn't affect the behavior of the program. And so, if you sort of edit the structure, a lot of this sort of other issue falls away and we can also provide for example better IDE support. So if, if you're in your IDE in editing some java and you sort of make a new line and you hit control space, what are you auto completing at that point? Are you auto completing the type that begins a variable declaration? Are you also completing a method name? You know, are you, uh, See, perhaps you did
1: not hit control tab. <laughs>
2: So your favorite IDE editor shortcut. Like basically in text, you don't necessarily know any context. Whereas in something like Scratch, you're always editing a particular thing. You know whether it's going to be a number. Uh, in Scratch, certainly a number or some text or a variable name or something. You just know from the structure. And same with our frame-based editor that you you first say, okay, I want to declare a variable. And then you're in the type slot for what type is this going to be. Sorry, Ruby folks. Uh, but you're declaring up front what the <laughs> type's going to be. And so when you hit, you know, your autocomplete, you then autocomplete type names. Then you move into sort of declaring the name, there's no particular autocomplete for declaring names, or so we haven't thought sort of been anything useful. And then you might have an initialization expression, then you'd autocomplete method calls or available variable names. So sort of by knowing the structure of your code up front, you can provide sort of better tool support, at particular points in your program, I hope that sort of makes sense.
1: What is a frame-based editor, what does the frame-based part mean?
2: So so this, just ref- this is just our name for sort of having, uh, we call these sort of graphical rectangles that we've got frames. If you imagine, so instead of having an if statement in uh, text-based language, we'd talk about an if frame. So it's sort of one entity. It's not just sort of um, put together out of syntax sort of bits with curly brackets. It's already like a rectangle that appears for you that's complete.
1: So it's that context, that place in the structure that you know you are
2: yeah and they are they're always complete so it, you can have half an if statement in the text based language because you forgot the sort of closing curly bracket or sort of closing d indent um but in editors like scratch it just comes as one thing you just have an if frame and it can't be, like it's always terminated there's no sort of run on syntax errors that crop up halfway down your program
3: I find that, especially with new people, sometimes seeing the structure of um, the code they're writing can be difficult, and indentation is supposed to fix that problem, but they often have problems with indentation, and editors aren't always great about indentation. So one of the things I liked about the frame approach from the example video that I saw on your site was that it makes that visual chunking of functionality really intuitive.
2: Yeah, so the indentation just comes naturally from the structure rather than having to sort of manage it Separately. And as you say, beginners especially have problems with indent. I mean, it's, it's hard to think of many other sort of computer based tasks where indent sort of has a, you know, particular sort of semantic meaning. Python, um, but yeah, but, but sort of outside programming is not something they're used oh, to. Oh, right. In yeah. Managing white space. It doesn't usually matter particularly, or it's just sort of a, an aesthetic thing. Uh, you know, if you're making a word document or something. So this idea that somehow the amount of space you put at the beginning of the line affects your program behavior is kind of, it's new and and a bit unexpected.
4: Yeah. Now, do you feel that these, uh, some of these ideas have legs beyond beginners?
2: Yes. Yeah. I I mean, I think the frame based editing, if we can get the interface good enough that it doesn't get in your way, then it is potentially better than text, even for professionals. Uh, The sort of a big if to some extent, um, because, like I say, this sort of initial try of structured editors just were too sort of rigid. Uh, they just kind of annoyed people. They're a bit weird to use. Um, and so, like I say, we're just trying to apply sort of more modern HCI knowledge. But I do sort of feel it's, it's potentially better than text. If I had all the IDE support that I do from, uh, I use uh, IntelliJ's uh, IDEA thing, if I had all the support that that gives for kind of refactoring and more complicated bits in my frame-based editor, I honestly think it, it would be more useful than text. Obviously, I'm are, are, hugely biased. <laughs> are, are you familiar with the
4: work of Jonathan Edwards at all?
2: Vaguely. The name rings a bell, but I can't
4: tell uh, He it. was at MIT, and he worked on the, the transcript programming system, which was working towards uh, sort of radically reinventing uh, how we interact with programs. Um, yeah. I want to read a quote from him. He moved on from that project. He's gone on to, to work with Alan Kay at CDG. But I want to read a quote to you, and I'm curious to get your take on it. I'm curious if you agree with it. Okay. He says, this is sort of reflecting on on his efforts to get some traction with the the stuff that he was working on. He says, my holy grail has been to radically simplify professional programming. I now realize that simplification is not fundamentally a technical problem, but rather a cultural one. Our nerd culture embraces inhuman levels of complexity. Mastering mind-boggling complexity is our mutant superpower. It is our tribal marker complexity is the air we breathe and so it is invisible to us. Simplification will only come from outside this culture. To disrupt programming, I first have to reinvent it for a fresh audience of non-programmers. I'm curious if you have any agreement with that.
2: Yeah, I can certainly see where he's coming from. One difficulty that people have with introducing Scratch to learners, for example, is that they see it and somehow they just mark it as not real programming. I mean, you can write you know, it's true and complete. You can do Any algorithm that you want in Scratch and as a programming language, it's as powerful as any other potentially. But because it's not something that's used in a professional way, people market as sort of, Oh, no, this is just a a toy thing. And other teaching languages have had similar fates in the past. One of the useful advantages of us for Java is that we can actually point to sort of industry and say, no, no, you know, this one's real. You know, people use this, but it's a silly distinction to have to. To make. But as you say, it all comes from sort of a cultural thing. Some researchers describe it as people are not just learning to program, they're aiming to join what they call a community of practice. That they want to come out, go out and be professional developers. And if you're trying to teach them with a tool that they believe is not used by professional developers, it will suffer. I think probably the easiest way to change programming education to some extent is to actually change industry first, even though that's obviously crazy tough. Because then people will actually see, okay, yeah I want to use that tool that that industry are using, so I think if you really wanted to reinvent programming, you'd probably start by trying to sort of change the tools that some professionals use, and then that would sort of backport as it were uh, into programming education interesting
4: so that's yeah that's that's kind of a, a different approach but i I definitely see I see your point there um you know a lot of you're right a lot of what people aspire to in education is what they see going on in industry
2: yeah and that could be. Somewhat dangerous because you, you know, especially a few years ago, you'd get people saying, you know, I want to be doing C++ because that's what the is doing. But right. to start programming C++ is harder than you know some other languages, and so especially at university, you have to sort of manage those kind of expectations, find a way that you can actually reasonably teach people to program while also making it clear that there is a path on to professional development. How much of the industry
3: changes you were talking about deal with um, technical matters and how much of it is dealing with elitism?
2: Yeah, I think there's definitely uh, an element of that. If if you have something that makes it easier to program, people will look down on it, I think. People who already program, they say, oh, you know, it's just a toy thing. You see it with, I don't know, things like games, you know, having a sort of game engine already written like Unity or whatever. Oh, no, you know, that's just sort of like toy stuff makes it easier professionals are now, of course, starting to use some of these systems because it it actually does make sense. But you often see this initial reaction of like, it makes it easier? Well, it must be nonsense in some way or other. Like, objectively, it's stupid. But I think culturally, that's what happens. And it is something you have to be sort of quite wary of.
1: It's the conflicting values of do I want to feel smart? Or do I want to be productive?
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love that.
0: Well, and it's that classic example, right, where the kids get praised for working hard or for being smart. And so, yeah.
2: Uh, so some work, if I can mention something that I am quite interested in, uh, is, uh, Andy Steffick, who I think has possibly been on your podcast in the past. Mm-hmm. I find his work very interesting because, you know, one thing that he's discovered is that there's very little research or kind of logic in that goes into a lot of programming language design. And so he sort of, you know, came to it and started looking, okay, which bits have we actually, you know, scientifically examined? And the answer turned out to be very, very little. And then he set about doing it and found, you know, this, this famous result of Perl's syntax is, you know, no better than ran- sort of randomly generated syntax. And so he is building a sort of language that can be used for programming education. And he is doing it bit by bit, actually trying to test, you know, what keywords make the most sense to people. You know, what sort of semantic model, you know, for types or whatever works well for people. And I think that's very interesting and a a sort of very useful future direction for us with our language. We haven't gone along those lines because we offer Java and our other language in the same tool. So we've tried to stick very close to Java and semantics and keywords. So there's not any difficulties for people transitioning between the two. But yeah, I think uh, Andy's work is sort of very interesting, especially for the future of uh, programming language design. For education and industry
4: that's going to be a very fine line to walk deciding which parts you're willing to radically change and which parts you want to keep the same for familiarity
2: yeah and i think often people get tempted to change everything you know there's sort of a temptation if you get to design a new language well i'm going to have a new syntax i'm going to have a new semantic model especially academics who come to design languages you know they want to reinvent everything all at once and obviously it's just it's difficult you know we're just trying with our work to reinvent the editing interactions you know we're not going to at the same time try and come up with some new type system or anything like that it's just too much work so we we pick okay this will just keep like java it's not perfect but we know it works you know just go with what works for that aspect and vary the bit we're actually interested in sort of you know experimenting with and playing around
1: and right. if you change everything then you don't learn anything from the difference
2: Yeah, exactly. So the study that I was talking about that we ran, we're using Greenfoot in both cases, they're programming using our editor in a new editor in one and Java in the other. And the semantics of what they're writing is the same. It's just the editor interaction that changes. So as you say, for a scientific point of view, that's important. Everything else held constant, one thing varied, you can actually uh, sort of tell the difference between the two.
0: So overall, I'm just curious, We've we've talked about a lot of specific things, and we've talked about some broader ideas. But as you study how people enter programming and learn about programming, what is it that you're actually trying to learn? Like what is your, what is your goal? What is the outcome that you're, you're hoping to have or what information are you hoping to glean?
2: So I, I think we'd like to make programming easier to learn, both in the sense that sort of more people can, can get into it and understand it, um, and also that they're less frustrated and spend less time Getting some grips with it. One thing that we found, the I mentioned this data collection project we did with Bluejay. So I, we collect their source code, and we can actually see for any individual sort of person who's opted in, we can see the program over time as they write it. And when you look through some of those programming traces, some of them are kind of just heartbreaking, because you see this person fighting and struggling with the compiler. They probably, you know, by themselves, they don't have anyone else sort of leaning over their shoulder telling them what to do and they're just getting it wrong over and over again and when you look at things like that you just think surely we can do better you know you see them get a compiler error message you can see that they've misinterpreted it they're editing some part of their program that doesn't matter you're watching it you know sort of way after it's happened wishing you could sort of lean back in time tap them on the shoulder and say there the semicolon goes there but you know you can't and you're just sort of looking at this and so having looked at some of the the programming traces that we see, we can surely make tools that will do better. We won't magically get 100% of the population understanding professional software development or anything like that, but the people who are learning to program, we can make it easier for them, that I'm sure.
0: Well, and if it helps with onboarding one one more person or two more people or three more people and you start incrementally making that difference, you know, so it's hundreds of people or thousands of people, it changes the the face of things because... Mm-hmm. We now have, you know, more people with more diverse backgrounds coming in, uh, you know, people who look at problems differently and solve things differently and lead us to think differently. And who knows? I mean, maybe that's going to lead to the next big breakthrough in programming or software or devices in general that in turn make a big difference in our quality of life as a, a culture or society.
2: Yeah. And I think one thing that's often missed with this sort of putting programming into schools is people always think that this is to solve an employment gap and that we are therefore aiming for everyone to learn to become programmers. But we don't teach music in school so that everyone can become a musician. We teach it so that, you know, they understand the basics and they get a broad education. So I think if we can, just teaching people to program a bit, even if they never do any more, they get a sense of what is possible with a computer and what isn't. And if you think of things like, you know, lawmakers who are ignorant of computers trying to sort of legislate for this sort of thing, just having a more, a that sort of um population that's more aware of what computers can do, what they can't do, you know, what the internet is, vaguely how it works, just sort of being more technically savvy. I think it will just be sort of better for, for everybody, even if they're not sort of, you know, doing more active development themselves, but just to have an understanding of, you know, sort of what computers are and what they can and can't do.
3: It's a basic literacy question.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: That's great. I had one more question. Neil, you mentioned that you're a programming education researcher as part of a team. I'm kind of fascinated by the differences between team structures in academia versus industry. Could you describe like how your team collaborates and works together and how they each advance their career while working in a team?
2: Yeah, I think we're, we're a slightly special case because often... We're slightly larger than than a lot of academic teams, so our work is funded uh, through a grant that we receive from uh, Oracle, uh, for which we're very grateful, and it allows us to employ three or four full-time. The university council as researchers because universities don't understand employing anyone who isn't a lecturer or researcher. So we're researchers, but really we do software development, you know, for for the most part. So our time is maybe. I don't know, finger in the air, 70% software development, 30% kind of research, writing papers, going to conferences, and that sort of thing. And so there's uh, three or four of us like that. We just sit in an office together, and you would probably recognize us as a standard sort of software engineering team. We maybe have sort of slightly different goals and approach, because we don't have any customers. You know, we're producing open source software. Um, We don't sort of have particular fixed deliverables or timescales or anything like that, so we can put in the features that we want. We can release it sort of on a timescale that we want. Obviously, we're hoping to get more users. You know, more is, is better, uh, generally. But, yeah, it makes for sort of an interesting development in, environment. So we're, we're kind of like software developers, but you'd probably recognize us as slightly sort of less advanced or, or sort of than some other developers. I don't know, just in terms of our sort of, you know, we're not very sort of hip and agile and uh, <laughs> everything like that. Um, oh, but, but you're
1: totally doing open source, so that's all the cred you
3: need. That's true. Yeah, yeah but yeah, they're we're doing a lot of debating between spaces and tabs still, so. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so we're kind of like a little sort of small team. We don't really interact much with the rest of the sort of university structure. You know, we're just focused on sort of building our software and releasing it. You know, we all do development, testing, support uh, and share that round, you know, like this, sort of, like happens on, on small teams. sound like
1: a highly yeah. functional software development team to me.
2: Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I don't know. I guess you sort of have this thing where sometimes, you know, I spend most of my time going to academic conferences. Sometimes I go to industry conferences. And, you know, it's all sort of the latest, like, way to organize your software team and the latest technologies. And that's not necessarily sort of us. You know, we're we're perhaps a bit more conservative in that regard. So I always, when I go to industry conferences, I kind of feel out of place. But it's kind of interesting. Um You know, it's it's, it's interesting to go there and, and see what it's like.
0: All right. Neil, if people want to follow up with you, see what you're working on these days, where do they do that?
2: I'm sort of reasonably active on Twitter. Um So I'm at Neil C.C. Brown. So that contains sort of a, a lot of details about our work and, and what we do. And I can also supply links to, well, if you just Google Blue Jay Greenfoot, uh, you'll find sort of the the things that we make.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks then. Avdi, do you want to start us with picks? I got nothing this
2: week. You've
3: been too busy enjoying the beautiful scenery of spring in Tennessee, haven't you?
4: That's, that's it. That's
0: exactly it. pick spring. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> one, yeah. Spring. Yay. All right, Coraline, what are your picks?
3: I have one pick today. I often have a problem on Monday mornings, especially at stand-up, of trying to figure out just what it was that I did the day before. So um, someone has written a tool to solve this problem. It's called Git Standup. It reminds you of what you did over the last N working days. Um, you basically navigate to the repository, you type Git Stand Up, um, you can supply an optional author name and how many days back you're interested in defaults to the past 24 hours. And it shows you all of your commits, all of your commit activity in that repo. Or if you go up a level to multiple repos, so it can be a good reminder of like exactly what you're working on. Like maybe, maybe it's, um, Tuesday morning and you don't remember where you left off. It's a great way to say, Oh yeah, that's the last thing I did. So kind of handy for stand up. Just run that a couple minutes before you get together with your group and, um, look smart. So that's it.
0: All right. Jessica, what are your picks?
1: My pick is CraftConf. It's a conference in Budapest. It's coming right up April 28th and 29th. And they live stream and record the sessions. So you could watch them live. You could watch my Elm Talk live on the 28th. Or you could watch the recording, which is immediately available. Uh, Super awesome. They have amazing speakers. You should check out their video stream. Or if you're in Budapest, you should go.
0: Awesome. I've got a couple of picks myself. First of all, just to preface this, I live in Salt Lake City, but we are doing a meet-up in Salt Lake City on May 5th. It's going to be downtown close to the Grand America Hotel where uh, a- uh, NGConf is going to be held. So if you're in the Salt Lake City area or you will be on May 5th, please come by and hang out and then try and sneak into the after party <laughs> for NGConf. But anyway, so that's one pick. Another pick, and this is something that I picked up while I was traveling the last few weeks, and that is a Zoom H6. Now, before when I was recording, I would record into an Edderall uh, R-09HR, which is a digital audio recorder. has a couple of microphones on the top. It's a pretty nice little piece of equipment. I think they run about $100. And it's just nice to have something you can carry around and record into that's not your phone. And the microphones are a little better quality than that. However, the Zoom H6 is sort of the next level from that. It actually has most of the features you'd want if you had like a little portable studio and it's built into this piece of equipment now. It's a little less easy to carry around because it's a little bit...